Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. We are continuing our look this week at some of the myths that exist around family business, family enterprise and family wealth. And in particular, we're going to be looking at the myth of the silver spoon this week. And I'm very fortunate to be joined by our guest, uh, Christine Keffler, who has literally written the book, on the myth of the silver spoon. So, Kristen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, Russ. And before we get into the detail around your book, which is called The Myth of the Silver Spoon, it would be great for our audience to hear a little bit more about who you are, your background, how you came to be doing what you're doing today, um, and then we can delve into some of the topics you cover in, uh, in your book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am, um, I am a family uh, business and family wealth consultant who started in this industry officially, um, just shy of two decades ago. Uh, my, the, my entry point into this work is all through human capital. It's all about family dynamics. Um, specifically when I started this work and I'll, I'll share my story of how I got here. Um, in just a minute. But when I started this work, it was really focused on the rising generation. My heart was really in the space of um, supporting the rising generation. And at that time, we didn't even have that terminology. So it was uh, as a next gen coach, really supporting them to try um, to to find not only find their place at the the uh, decision-making table in their family, but even I would say more importantly was the work that we did that I did with them around um, identifying like who they were as as an individual separate from the family business and from family wealth, and what were the core elements of who they were that they wanted to bring forward into the world, and what was getting in the way of their ability to do that. Um, and then we layered on the skills that they needed to be successful. So not only personal vision and motivation, but also um, the skills around um, you know how to how to make how to understand the financial landscape, understanding trusts and estates in the vernacular, so beneficiary skills, um, financial skills, et cetera. So that's where I started. Ultimately, um, my work has expanded to include whole family dynamics and whole family enterprise systems. Um, but I come to this work from a really honest place in my own journey. Um, my dad, I'm, I'm a second gen in my family. My dad um, was a successful entrepreneur, and the last company that he started, he actually started with my oldest brother. Um, I'm the youngest of four, so my oldest brother's seven years older than me. And at this point in time, my oldest brother had been working with my dad for quite a few years since he was a teenager. Um, 
And I, he's my, my oldest brother at this point in time was like 25 or 26. I was getting ready to go to college. Um, and they started this, uh, this business that was just sort of right idea at the right time, economic wins at their back and, and the right things happened. And ultimately, um, in a very short order, my, my dad's vision was not to create a, a multi-generational family business. My dad's vision was to build something and take it public. And that's what he did. So in, in very short order, really on the relative scale, they, um, they did that. They had a great team. They built a great company. And by the time I was graduating from college, they um, had taken the company public, had a second public offering sometime later, and then ultimately sold it. Um, so there were these series of wealth events that happened um, in succession right at a really um, important time in my own development. I was exiting college, thinking about what was next for myself. Um, and, and while I had always, I had been raised with, my dad had always been financially successful and, and I honestly never really thought about money, which is obviously a, a privilege in itself. Um, there were these moments in, as, and in, in my, in my dad's um, business story and his business evolution that created these inflection points in our family wealth story. And those things for me um, really sort of kicked up a lot of emotional stuff and, and some questions about um, a dual identity for me. Like, well, am I the, like, am, am I the, the young adult who gets to fly off to New York and go on on fancy shopping sprees and and Broadway sprees with my parents, or am I the public the the young adult who's getting a master's in public health and is really wants to go into public service? And like those two different peer groups, the two like it was it was very much a dual reality for me, and I didn't know how to to integrate my family story with who I was as an individual, and um, had not thought at all about money or wealth or identity in that context. Um, so there was, there was some emotional, um, cloudiness for me. And on top of that, um, my, my parents were very progressive in thinking about family meetings. That's, it was at a time that that wasn't a really common thing, um, that I'm aware of. And I, we were certainly the only family I knew that was like gathering together to talk about estate structures and financial structures. And, um, and we started having these meetings and, um, I found that I, Time and time again, I really wanted to understand what was happening. And I'd go into that meeting, like ready to learn. And I would come out of that meeting just as confused as I went into the meeting. I didn't understand the terminology. I didn't understand the flow charts. I didn't understand how they impacted me or what I what questions I could be asking. Um, and, and little by little, the dawning for me was I needed to, I needed to get um, I needed to get some support to understand what was happening and I needed to be able to, to get in the driver's seat. Um, and that ended up leading me, my own journey, my own, um, seeking to understand led me to ultimately this work that I feel really privileged to get to do with rising Jen and their families now. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things I want to, to pick out of your, uh, introduction again before we get into the the sort of main topic of of the show the the first one is you, we're going to be talking about your book which you you share some of your experiences within that book and one of them 
relates to that time in college where you get a car and that story I, I found really interesting as I was reading through because it kind of highlights what you were just saying about wh- where does my identity live? Could you just give the, the audience a bit of a feel for, for that particular story? Yeah, I, I love that story too. And because it 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 does capture this this duality of experience that as an 18 year old, I couldn't, I didn't even have like the conscious awareness to, to know it was happening. It was, it's only been upon reflection as a, a more, you know, aware adult that I could see the duality. But so the story is um, when I was getting ready to graduate from high school and go to college, my, um, my, I, I got a, a nearly full ride academic scholarship to a private school that was my top pick. Um, and my dad said to me, he said, you're saving me a lot of money. And so I think we should get you a new car. And what, you know, what do you want? And so we, you know, I, I played with some ideas of what I wanted. And I finally landed on this, um, this little sports car, little two door coupe sports car. And, um, and we went and picked it out and it was brand new and like, it was I like I can still smell it and I can still Mm. feel what it felt like to sit down in it and it like had this great stereo and it was like you know way too powerful of a car for someone who powerful like the engine was powerful and it was like a it was a statement of a car um and I loved it you know I loved driving it off the lot and um and but there were still a couple weeks left of school and so I went to go drive it to school I went to a public high school in our neighborhood and I, um, as I'm driving it to school, I realize like the student parking lot is a danger zone for any car. And so I was like, well, okay, I'm not going to take this car into the student parking lot. I'm going to go, I'll drive it to the teacher's parking lot, but students aren't allowed to, to park in the teacher's parking lot. So I was already like getting very uncomfortable with that idea, but I decided I was going to do it anyway. And I went and went over and I drove into the teacher's parking lot and I parked the car and I, I can still viscerally feel the sinking feeling in my stomach when I parked the car and got out. One, I felt like, oh my gosh, I don't like, I shouldn't be doing this. Two, I, I looked around and I was like, this car is nicer than the cars in the teacher's parking lot. And I just had this sort of crummy feeling. I didn't feel, I didn't feel proud and like, look at me. I felt like, oh shoot. I'm, I'm going to be getting attention for this and it may not be the kind of attention I want. And I remember slinking into the, to the front of the building for the last couple of weeks of school with the same feeling and, and, you know, really not processing it, not knowing how to process it, having no place to where I would have even thought about taking that, that experience and saying, you know, Hey, I'm like, I'm, I'm excited and I, I feel really honored that my dad is celebrating this academic scholarship with this awesome gift. And I feel really weird that I have th- this material object that, that other people are going to make an assessment about me based purely on this thing. And I had no way to understand those two things were happening or anyone to talk to to help me reconcile that. Um, and it's like I said, it's only been upon reflection that I could even see that as a as a really defining moment Mm. yeah and I think that that as you say the um the story highlights the duality of that your your sort of reality and what you've been able to 
work on over time to then think actually there's other rising gen who are in the similar position, having a similar experiences with the similar feelings. And would it be fair to say part of that is behind the motivation for writing the book? For sure. Uh, for sure. A hundred percent. I feel like, um, you know, there's the, there's my own lived experience and then there's the, the nearly two decades of work that I've done where I've had the opportunity to be in intimate conversations with rising gen where, where, when time after time, after time, when, when I will open up the conversation about this idea of a, a relationship with money or relationship with wealth or identity that gets enmeshed in, in money and wealth. When we first open that up and there's, and I give, we give language to what someone is feeling for the first time. I've had this experience where there's this sense of like being seen that, that the rising gen I I'm sitting with feels seen for the first time, maybe not, maybe for the first time, but they feel seen in this, in this little slice where it's like, they, they're, they now have the opportunity to start to untangle some of the things that have felt tangled because they didn't actually have language and awareness as to why it, what was feeling tangled, but there was this sense of stuckness. And, uh -huh. um, and so ultimately the drive for me around writing the book was that, um, that I, I wanted to give voice and a voice to the, to this clutter, this psychological clutter that can, that can so easily and in my experience so commonly builds up in the lives of rising gen but it is it is one of those things that we just really don't talk about um or give name to one because money is a is a really sort of subconscious taboo topic culturally anyway and by extension mm -hmm. wealth is definitely something that we have a tangled relationship with and um and so often the the rising gen I talk to will say, well, no one wants to hear the problems of a rich kid. Like this may be happening for me. I can now name my my own struggle and pain, but like I, there is no safe place for me to surface this up and then try to really look at it and heal it because like, I'm going to sound like a jerk if uh -huh. I, if I tell anyone that I'm struggling in any, in any way. And, um, and I really wanted to, I wanted to like let in some fresh air into all of that and say like, yeah, can we acknowledge that we have culturally that we have um, a kind of entangled relationship with money and wealth? And, and can we acknowledge that it's, it's also um, real that those um, people who have been raised in families of wealth and influence where there's a significant enterprise and significant resources that they too are human and that they too may have problems and they may actually have some unique problems and unique challenges because of the situation they've been raised in. And because we have this sort of tangled relationship with money and wealth that we don't give space for that to be a true as well, for that reality for them to be true. And, um, and by pointing at that and then being able to say like, yeah, th there's a pathway out of we, we can clear that clutter, that mm -hmm. psychological clutter. And when we do, we are, we, there is um, an opportunity for these rising gen to one, not only um, tap into their own purpose and the ability to self-actualize, which is, um, 
which is a beautiful individual pursuit. But that self-actualization can have significant ripple impact because these are people who have access to financial resources and social networks. And when they are when they are firmly grounded in who they are and have confidence in that and have a vision in the world, their ability to amplify impact is significant. And yeah. that feels really inspiring to me. Absolutely. And I'd like to, to dig in a little bit more around the taboo of, of wealth and, and money. But before we do, though, and you mentioned in um, the, the conversation we've had so far around the language, I think it's important we distinguish between, you, you mentioned it, the, it, it used to be kind of next gen and, and actually the term rising generation has come along and, and much better fits what you and I would understand to, to be rising gen, but it might be a phrase that others haven't come across. Mm. So I think it'd be useful to to clarify what we mean by rising generation because typically it's senior gen, next gen uh, and so on. So if you could just spend a couple of minutes um, summarising that for us, that'd be really useful. Yeah, absolutely. The So, you know, typically we have referred to the the um, following generation. So not the leading generation or not the wealth creating generation. We've, we've referred to every generation after that as the next gen. And so that could be a, a second gen or a third gen or a fourth gen. And the problem with that language, and we know that language is powerful. Language creates the map of our understanding of the world. So it's not a small thing to language isn't, uh, it's not inconsequential. It matters how we name things because that's then how we frame things. And so the idea of next gen, what's problematic is that it, it puts someone in a category that is always in relationship to the wealth creating generation, to, to what came before them. It, it doesn't, it's not even like generations that came before that. It's not even just about family lineage in general. It's about this specific person or this specific couple, um, in some cases where it's like grandma and grandpa or my mom and dad, they are the people who are like, they really put the stamp of who our family is and everybody else is in relationship to that. Mm -hmm. And, um, what's prob so, so it's problematic because then you're always sort of orbiting the wealth creator and, and, um, and finding identity separate from that is, um, is more difficult. The rising generation, on the other hand, is a terminology that really has to do with less about um, relationship to the wealth creator and more about a psychology. It's about a psychology, the way that um, that it's described in um, the voices of the rising generation, which I think is the first place that it was ever defined, um, mm -hmm. is that the rising generation is really about the it, anybody in the family. It could be a spouse. It, it could be um, you know, cousins, it's like whoever is in the, in this family who has adopted a psychology of growth and learning and a willingness to, to lean into the reality of being in a family like this and, and be committed both to, to individuation and, and, and self-growth as well as to figuring out, um, what it looks like to, to be in relationship with a significant family. And it's really about a psychology and a willingness to grow rather than an orientation to a singular person of significance. And so in that, it gives a much bigger space for people 
to find their way and their path. And it's, and it also gives space and invites the idea of growth and individuation rather than just orientation to a single person. Yeah. Perfect. So I think that's a, a great way to, to, for if the audience haven't heard of the, the term rising gen to, to summarize that's it, perfect. Um, as you mentioned about the kind of taboo topic of wealth and money, and it, in some cases, it's almost like we want, we would rather talk about anything else than that kind of with our family and, and those around us. But why do you think that is? What, what is it about money and wealth in particular that seems to be difficult for us to talk about? Yeah, I, you know, I, I probably, that there's probably some, you know, historical anthropologist or something that would be able to, to have a, a, some great research grounded response to how did our relationship with money evolve? Um, and I'm not that person, but my, my observation, my, my wondering is that, um, you know, when we, that, that when money, so when we, when we first started um, interacting, like people used to exchange goods and goods and services, right? Is it was a very, that barter system was a very direct kind of like, I can give you this, you can give me that. And in that there's always a, the virtuous cycle of being connected to your own ability to contribute. Like if I can weave and you have cows, then I can like, we can exchange things that we both need. And there's a, there's a strong connection to that feeling of contribution. As soon as, you know, you think about like um, the industrial revolution and, and the mechanization of, of the, of goods. And then suddenly we're in a situation where, now money, you can create money at a much greater scale than people need to use it. It's not just even a stand-in directly for goods and services. Now it's something that you can amass. And so in in my hypothesis, like that's a that is a time when we likely started really creating um money became something that was less tangible. Wealth certainly became something less tangible and where we weren't connected there was the opportunity to not be so connected to our contribution. Like mm-hmm. this is what I do and this is what I receive in return. Um, and that's the time when multi-generational wealth started to become a thing where you get even more disconnected from the input and the output. Um, and, and so I think there's probably lots of fingers that have created this, this um, way that we are collectively with money um, and with wealth. And we can, I, we can talk in a minute. I, I keep using those terms distinctly and I define them differently. Um, so maybe we can talk about that in a minute. But mm. one of the things that um, I think happens is that money can, and, uh, and by extension, wealth can become, because we don't have a really clean relationship with inputs and outputs and what it is and, and like there, there's just a lot of clutter there that, that money can become a stand in it can become a proxy. We have let it become a proxy for other human needs like love or security or, um, or yeah, like it's so many human needs, the acceptance, like there's this way that, that instead of moving into that human emotion and figuring out like, how do I get this need met? 
money can be the thing like, oh, look, he does love me because he's buying me that gift. But do I feel the love or do I mm-hmm. experience the gift? And and it's like that can that has created a very entangled space. And I think without really a vernacular for us to uh, like a, a, a language for, for mapping out how our interper our, our interrelationship with money exists for each of us. Instead, we anthropomorphize it and we, we steal from the language of human emotion, right? Mm-hmm. So like we yearn for something or we, we, um, we, we love money or we, we detest it. It's all, it's about our um, projection of human emotion onto this thing. That's really just a tool. It's just a thing. Um, So I think that that's part of it's, it's part of each of our inner work is it's part of each of our, our work is to heal that inner relationship that we have with money and figure out how do we put it in its right place? Like it's a powerful tool. Let's let it be a tool. Let's let it not, rule so much of, of our emotional landscape. Absolutely. And, and I think, again, you mentioned it, but now I think it's a really good opportunity to distinguish between money and wealth because we're talking about, in this series of the podcast anyway, around myths that exist around family business, family wealth and, and the like. And a lot of um, the kind of preconceived ideas can often be, well, if you've got money or you've got wealth you don't have the same challenges in terms because you can just pay for it to go away right that that kind of is the misconception that oh well if there's money you can just pay for problems to go away and i think that's part of what we're trying to to debunk in in terms of uh, the the myths that exist but i think an important distinction there is is to look at money and wealth so again if you if you could give us your thoughts there that would be um, a, a really useful uh, conversation yeah, I, I, so the way that I've defined these, and I, I think it has felt important um, in my work to distinguish between money and wealth, because I, I at times will have conversations with rising gen who feel, who are actually in a decently healthy relationship with money, with, with what I describe as the, the day-to-day human-scaled um, interaction with the, this tool that is money that we can use, um, you know, to go buy groceries or to buy coffee. It's like something that's very human scale and, and we feel connected to maybe how we have that money and how much a cup of coffee is. Um, but that, but that they, they may have a very decently healthy relationship with money, but have a very unhealthy relationship with wealth. And so for me, it has felt really important to define those things separately so that we know which terrain we're working in. And some, um, so money, as I said, is the way that I um, look at it with clients is, is this thing that is very human scale and, and transactional and we can feel connected to its flow. Wealth is the accumulation of money on such a scale that it becomes an abstraction right? It's no longer some, like it's numbers on a statement. It's something that's, that is at a level, whatever that, that boundary condition is for each person, it becomes the thing where it's like, I can see the numbers, but I don't like, I don't interact with that. I can see them grow. I can see them shrink, but it's all, it's still an abstraction. Uh And um, and so being able to understand the two separate terrains means that we can build the skills to be 
in relationship with both. Yeah, and I think that's really important is labeling, giving meaning to it means you can then start having meaningful discussions about it. And and what sprang to mind there when you were talking about money versus wealth is money is kind of on a a more micro everyday kind of level, whereas wealth itself can become something that's macro, it's much bigger, it's much larger, it's kind of looms almost in that sense yes. whereas and you can have different relationships with each right so you can have a different yep. relationship with your money as you can with the, the wealth overall and that it brings me on to, to, to a question around that duality that you were de- describing earlier in that wealth can often feel like a burden and you were saying that it, it you know it felt difficult for you to go like or, or the clients you work with to go I can't actually talk about this because it comes across as, or why should I, you know, feel uncomfortable with the burden of wealth? But can you speak to a a little bit about that as well, around why wealth can become a burden and and what you've seen in your work and in uh, producing the book? Yeah, I, so I think, um, I think that one of the challenges of the, the, the place in which wealth can become a burden or become problematic is when it is a terrain that is unexplored and that we're on like, like where it, where it recedes as a burden, where it becomes something that either becomes neutral or can like tip into actually being something that that's a positive um, is, um, is when we have clarified our identity separate from, from our family, um, you know, whether it's family business and the wealth it creates or whether there's, um, you know, in many cases, there's um, a, a family has sold the business and then there's liquidity. And then there's this thing called wealth that is when we over identify with it or under identify with it. And this is some work that that Jim Grubman and Dennis Jaffe in their their seminal acquirers and inheritors article. I think that the work they did on this was was just really brilliant. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think, so it, it, at the, um, the summary of that is that like, there's this, on this continuum of identification, you can over identify with, with wealth and, and really feel like, like I am being a wealthy person is part of who I am. And when that is the case, then, then it's really important to maintain the status and the appearance and, and like to organize yourself around wealth. And the other side of the continuum is to under identify with it. And I, you know, you see this in rising gen who like want to get as far away from their, their family name and that wealth as possible. And they haven't figured out how to healthfully integrate those resources into their lives. So either they, they do nothing with it or they sort of let, you know, they let themselves be sort of supported by it, but they want to not pay attention to what, to, to how they're being supported by it. And it's all very unconscious and mucky and where, where there's really the power is to, is to, to find the balance between under identification and over identification and really find like, who am I and, and how, who am I without this so that I can identify my own voice and my own path and really understand, you know, have a deep, well, personal identity capital. And then how do I integrate wealth as a, as a tool and an idea in my life that is supportive of who I am as a, 
as an individual with a mm-hmm. with this strong core identity. Um, so I think that's where it really becomes a burden is when when you're on that continuum and and on one end or the other and and haven't actually found like who I who you are um, and the strength of that separate from wealth as a concept. Yeah. And and again, you've used the the term a few times throughout the conversation already, the the term of individuation. Is that what you mean by that in terms of having that sense of identity and and understanding who you are? Is that what you mean by the kind of individuation? Yeah, in in part, for sure. You know, the process of individuation is in part the, the time in life when you, when you're, when one is developmentally, one is, is working to to see how they are both similar to and different from a family of origin, right? So like how, like, who are they as an individual? And, um, and so in part that is for, for rising gen raised in significant families, part of the individuation is also creating that, that discernment um, around wealth and family wealth and what that, what that means to them. Um, and, and the only, it's just, it's just got to be work that is taken on consciously and, and with self-compassion and a willingness to be kind of messy because it's, that is the, that is in my experience, that's the evolutionary path to freedom, to liberation is, is sort of like trying on personas and trying on like, how does this feel? And what do I think about this? And, oh, wow, look, I still get tripped up with that thought, um, or I still want to hide in this circumstance or shine to, you know, hold, not, not shine too bright, but like hold the persona of a wealthy person in this circumstance. Like, how do I feel about that? Though that's mm-hmm. all part of the work of like finding one's own voice and one's own orientation in this landscape. Yeah. And you said that uh, a great word I like um, to, to use as well, that messy is, is uh, that can be messy, right? but the, I guess from my perspective, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but in terms from my perspective is to embrace the messy. Um, it's a phrase I heard years ago at a conference um, around content creation actually was, you're, you're never going to get it absolutely right, but just embrace the messy. Don't let perfection be the enemy of progress. And I think that, yes. again, it, it, it rings true with what you're saying there. Yep, uh, it's so true. And like it gets, it's, uh, it's so, you know, I... I as someone who who strives for excellence, I get how um, it can feel scary to think about letting the messy be, like just embracing it. Um, mm. And it it is the you know I often talk about with clients that there's like this period of time, particularly when we're first diving into the work, where it's like we're just taking everything in all the drawers and we're like dumping them out. And it is going to look messier for a while. And it's going to feel like, what are, where are we going in this until we start to pick out the important things, get rid of the stuff that doesn't matter anymore, organize it into piles, and then we can actually do something with it. But, but as long as it's like shoved away in the drawers or, or uh-huh. like, we can't, we can't do anything with it. Like everything can look nice on the, you know, to use, to extend that analogy, everything can look nice on top of the dresser, but if the drawers are stuffed with, with all sorts of clutter, like we're not going to get very far. Yeah. And, and let's dive into to that, the topic of clutter. Cause again, it's something that you cover um, w- within the book. Uh, again, go through, if you can, the, the, 
uh, types of clutter and, and the impact of that, that that can be felt by those um, it, the, the the book is appealing to. Yeah. So this, I you know, maybe this isn't a, an exhaustive list, but this is the as I thought about like what's my what's my experience as I've had the opportunity to sit in in really honest conversations with a lot of rising gen over the years and. Um, what what are the where do I see them get tripped up time and time again? And so th- this is the four types of clutter that that I identified. That um, and you know you think about like I, I chose clutter as the as the metaphor here because it really is about like you know when when you think about clutter is the stuff that hides in the corners. It's the stuff that we jam in the closet. It's it's like it's not the stuff you have in the foyer where everybody can come in and say like, oh, what a beautiful home. It's like the stuff we put down in the basement because we don't want to deal with it. It's like, so it's hiding in all these places, even if things look good on the surface. And so um, so that's sort of this, the the overarching ideas, like what, what's hiding beneath the surface? And so the four top types of clutter that I, I identified as what I, that I see most commonly is money clutter, which is really limiting beliefs about money and, and also wealth, money stories that don't serve um, the rising gen, you know, about who they are, what they have. Um, and this could be, extend into then financial behaviors that are not um, responsible or conscious, um, uh, you know, understanding cash flow and credit and being responsible for their own financial lives. So money clutter is, it, it usually starts with some, um, internal belief system, unconscious mindsets around money and wealth, and then extends to behaviors in that that illustrate those um, those sort of uh, distorted mindsets. The second form of clutter is identity clutter, and we talked a little bit about this just a minute ago. But it's the identity clutter is really like it's false beliefs about who you are and who you need to be. Um, and what money, what role money and wealth play in your life as an individual. It's, it's other people's projections about wealth and what, and your acceptance of those projections. It's your own projections about wealth. So it's, it's that over identification and under identification, then finding that, that special middle place where it's like, there's just the identity of the person and money and wealth are, are the tools, Mm -hmm. um, but the cluttered places before you get there. Uh, the third kind of clutter that, that I see most commonly is relationship clutter. And um, this is, this comes up, it's a, it's a, such a painful territory because it's can be in romantic relationships for sure. Um, and certainly also in friendships. And that can start really young where there's some, some questioning, like it, it, before I, before you're even really aware that you might be, um, questioning, right? Like the authentic of the authenticity of relationships. Like, do those kids want to come and hang out at my house because they really love hanging out with me? And are they equally as excited to have me hang out at their house? Or do they just want to come over here because I have the best toys and they don't want me to go over to their house and find out that they don't have as many fun things? Like, is the friendship about the friend or is it about the, the stuff and our, and our early projections about about status based on stuff. Um, and, and that can, you know, that a lot, because we don't have typically don't have good, um, good language around money and wealth. And because it's very often taboo to even talk about in families, 
kids are often raised without having the space for these conversations and to detangle how they're feeling about friendships and, um, and, you know, whether they're feeling alienated because they have something or alienated because they, they, yeah, for whatever reason, they don't understand how, what the relation, the, the real, um, fabric of the relationship is. And this can, um, extend very painfully into more romantic relationships and marriages where there's, where there's the part of the dynamic that starts to play out is this, um, codependency on the wealth as a, as a thing that, that the couple is orienting around rather than really putting themselves at the center of it. Um, and then finally, the last one is contribution clutter. And I named it contribution clutter rather than work clutter because work, um, you know, has such a connotation with, with paid work, which is actually, um, in my experience, really important for a lot of rising gen to engage in, in some activities where they feel that their contribution matters in a way that is tangible and they can relate to other peers about receiving um, payment for the work that they're doing. But that doesn't always have to be the case. Not everybody has to get paid for the work that they do. But the clutter is that there's the self-limiting narratives about the value a person has and the confusion around the fact that the financial, removing the financial need to work doesn't remove the human need to work. And as humans, we are wired for contribution. We're wired to recognize that we matter, that when we show that it matters that we wake up, it matters that we go do something in the world and that we get validation for, for being in the world. And without uh-huh. that, we, we have this confusion that like, if you don't have the financial need to work, then, you know, and work, you know, work it, why work if you don't have to, but that removes that, that negates this whole element of the human need to work, which is so elementally important to our feeling of mattering. Yeah. And that, it reminds me of the, again, if we're talking about, um, myths, um, I used to, to be, uh, far more in, involved in wealth management before I got into to family business, um, advisory. And I used to, I was fortunate enough to work with lottery winners. And they would very often go, part of my ambition is I'm going to stop work. I don't need to work now. I've got more money. And they didn't actually appreciate. And that was very sudden wealth, right? It's not, not accumulated or inherited wealth at the time. It's very sudden wealth. But the, their anticipation of what they would feel like around not having the need to work was entirely different to the reality because they kind of replaced that need to give contribution with so I substituted, well, I don't need to do that because I've got a load of money in the bank now. But the reality was the the real reason that we do it, as well as providing for our families, is is for that element of contribution, right? It, it is feeling like we are giving something back and we have purpose. Yep. Yep. I think you, I mean, you nailed it from a, from a, a different perspective. It's that, it's that w- when you have enough, then is it like, do you, do you, not need to work. That's the one of the the first things people look at, right? It's like, oh, I will be happier if I'm not working. And and they're, you know, depending on what kind of job you're doing and how you feel the meaning and purpose in that job aligns with who you are, there probably are people that would be a lot happier not working in what they were working in. But that doesn't mm. mean not working is actually the right choice. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've seen it firsthand where people have stopped, you know, they've, they've quit the job that they, um, that they had and then realized actually that wasn't the, the best thing they could have done. I mean, again, it's individual yep. to such different people's circumstances and, and it may provide the opportunity to follow something that they are truly passionate about where they weren't doing so before. So again, not, not to give the impression that everyone should stay in a job that they're in if they don't have if they have the opportunity to do something else. Um, so, so we've talked about some of the challenges and burdens that wealth can bring. What What is it that we can be doing to try and ease that and to try and help prepare rising gen for what they're going to face and, and kind of overcoming that side of things? Yeah. Um, so this is, this is one of the things that is really near and dear to my heart because um, because one, I'm, I, I think that the most effective, um, way to move forward is to have, have a solutions focused approach. It's not, it, we, we need to look at, at that clutter. We need to understand the landscape of what, like, why is this actually difficult when from the outside, no one would think this would be that I would have difficulty. Right. And, and so that's important. But then to, in order to actually do something with it, we need to move into um, some action, some some powerful positive action. And so this this part of um, is very near and dear to my heart because it's based in the research that I did when I was at the University of Pennsylvania um, in 2017 and 2018. And um, as part of my master's in applied positive psychology, the the thesis work that I did was interviewing exemplar rising generation family members. So exemplars are those who are at the upper end of development for their population. So I, I found um, through my network, I found rising gen who were, who self-reported that they were thriving, that they were engaged, that they, they felt really settled and confident in their lives. And I, I went about interviewing them to try to understand um, were there common character traits and skills that they had that, that made it so that they felt that that was part of the scaffolding that supported them to feel like they, they felt, which is thriving. And, and while I'm sure there are, there are many other factors that also support rising gen to be successful and to feel confident um, and competent in their lives. There, there were a couple key things that came out of my research data that I think are, are really just useful tools um, and those five components were one, they had adopted at some point in their life, they had adopted a growth mindset. So the belief that a, tra- you know, growth mindset is the belief that a trait like intelligence or resilience is, is malleable and can be developed rather than a fixed mindset, which says I am who I am. And so anytime I venture out of this narrow band of who I am, then I, um, I like I, I will illustrate that I'm not as smart as you know. Like you, you find the limits of your intelligence. You find the limits of your grit. And where a growth mindset says there are no limits. I I keep le- leaning in. It's it's difficult. I learn. I grow. I get better. Um, so they had a growth mindset. Um, they the these exemplars all had developed grit through like the build that that character trait of grit, which is defined as passion and perseverance for a long-term goal. Um, so they had stuck with something long enough to really like get through the hardship, find the, the power of accomplishment and knew that they had what it took to like, to make something happen. Gritty people just don't give up. 
Um, the third thing was a map, having a mastery orientation. And you can imagine a lot of these, these character traits are very interdependent with each other. Um, so mastery orientation is someone who is directed to a, towards a solution rather than focusing on the cause of failure. So that is very much the interconnection between growth mindset and grit is someone who has a mastery orientation is like when something doesn't go quite according to plan, they go, huh, well, what can I learn from that? Like, why did that happen? And what would we do different next time? Right. They, they fail fast. They learn, they move on. And, mm -hmm. um, and so having a mastery orientation is really important to, to long-term growth. Um, the fourth one is that they had developed the instinct for really recognizing close positive relationships. They'd been able to, to discern between the, between true authentic friends and the near enemy of the true authentic friend, which is maybe someone who looks like a friend, but like, uh -huh. you know, like doesn't really resonate deep. Um, so they, they had built that skill and knew that there were people in their lives who loved them for who they were and not what they had. Um, and then finally, that the use of character strengths and virtues, really recognizing what the, their core character strengths are and being able to use their, those in their lives regularly. Um, so those were, that's the scaffolding that can help a rising gen move forward is to clear that clutter, um, build these character traits and skills, and then there's the room to look out into the world. So you've looked at the characteristics of exemplar um, rising gen. What are some of the things that people can start doing now to kind of reimagine wealth, its power to impact lives, communities and society? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think that there's, I, I want to make, I want to make it really clear, first of all, that not every rising gen needs to go be a massive change maker in the world and a social entrepreneur in order for their life to have value. I feel really, it's really important to state that like self tending to self and, and doing the work so that one can be an authentic, engaged person in their family, uh, be good parents, be, be active community members in their community. And that, like that, that's actually enough, um, right. To be a contributor is in your own life is actually enough. And, um, and, but, and there is also this invitation, you know, in the vein of, um, to, to he who much has been given much is expected. There is an invitation to look at the social networks and the, and financial resources that one has and say, like, when I'm really on purpose, um, what, what impact might I have? How might I leverage what I have been given to really create a ripple impact that I can, I can stand proud in. And, um, and so I'm not sure that exactly answers your question, but I think the, at the heart of this is the invitation to, to look inward, to, to say, Hey, like I, like it, it does, it's not an insurmountable task to, to do this work, to clear the clutter, to detangle the places that are tangled and to move forward in a way of, from a place of meaning and purpose. And sometimes that can be done inside family systems. And sometimes someone needs to like take a step out to create the distance so that they can do that. And be just because of the dynamic of a family, and it may not be the healthiest environment to do this work. That's okay too. Um, 
But I think that one of the things we need to remember is like we are a, a big community of, of people, the, the advisors who work with Rising Gen and these family systems, the parents who are parenting in this in these families, um, and the Rising Gen themselves. Like we are a, a triad that needs to be co-supportive in, in, in inviting these conversations and creating a space where we can have more healthful um healing conversations about the role that money and wealth can play in our lives that are problematic and how we might uh, transform those to something that's actually really creates a lot of possibility. Absolutely. And I would uh, highly recommend to anyone where this has resonated, this topic has resonated with them, that they check out your book, which is The Myth of the Silver Spoon. Where can people find out more about you and your work um, and uh, find out more about the book. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn and you can just look up Kristen Keffler, which is K-E-F-F-E-L-E-R. It's got a hidden extra E in there. Um, and my my website has information about the book. So Illumination um, 360, I-L-L-U-M-I-N-A-T-I-O-N 360.com. And you'll find book links there. Um, and there'll be soon there'll, there'll be some videos up and um, and also some, there's plenty of information about the book and other resources. So um, I welcome yeah. people to take a look there and reach out to me there. I'd love to be in conversation about this topic. It's something that is deep in my heart and I feel like I'm carrying my flag about it right yeah. now. Like I want to, I want this to be my own ripple impact. And that has, has come across in the passion you, you speak about the topic on, on today. And, and I'm really grateful for this conversation. It's been fantastic i will link everything that you've spoken about into the show notes um but for now kristin kepler thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing this with us thank you russ thanks for listening i really do appreciate it if you found the show helpful please consider leaving a review on itunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter if what i've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business i can help I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.